Well, it's time to get your Bible out. If you didn't bring one of those, we'll sell you one. Um, we're not trying to make any money, but we, sh- we would love to see you have your own, and, and they're out there, and you can grab one on the way out, and next week you can come and follow as we read a portion of it each week, because we, uh, we're convinced that really the only inerrant thing that you're going to hear this morning is what I'm about to read. So um, stay tuned as I read from Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Genesis 2 at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I think at least a few of you will remember that a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I, I announced then that we were going to set aside our, our um, series on the parables. And I, in its place, we were going to do a, a series on marriage really, really out of uh, respect for Mother's Day and Father's Day. Um, and I entitled that series two weeks ago, An Uncommon Union. And that's a term that I got out of a story that I read uh, about Jonathan Edwards. Um, Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes. And uh, the story, if if you remember it, um, Jonathan Edwards was on his deathbed. He had taken a smallpox inoculation and and it had gone bad and it killed him. But on his deathbed, uh, he dictated a letter to his daughter, Lucy, who was supposed to take that letter to his wife, Sarah, who was also confined to a bed of illness. So she couldn't be with him. And in that, in that um, letter, uh, Edwards called his marriage to Sarah an uncommon union. <laughs> and that term just grabbed my imagination and, and my heart. An uncommon union. You know, marriage is uncommon, isn't it? It's, it's uncommon because it is so distinct. It, it is unlike any, any other thing in all of creation. Um, it's, it's one of the, the high points 
of the whole creation story. And, and you know, I hope, or I think, that this is, um, this is the first recorded miracle where God puts Adam to sleep, takes one of his ribs, and we gentlemen have been one rib shy ever since, and creates this whole other creature called woman. Um, what I think you probably also know is that there's nothing worse than a bad one. Marriage. And there's nothing better than a good one. You know, it's no wonder that people love to go to weddings. Um, for, for sheer joy, nothing quite compares to a wedding. You know, I, I've done my, my share of those. Um, and my perspective is, um, is, is very different from yours. Um, because when you come to a wedding, you sit out in those pews and you get to see the backs of people's heads. But I'm up here. I'm up here. I'm up here close and personal. I'm standing so close to the groom that I can see him sweat. I, I can see him cry. I can see that smile on his face when, when those doors in the back of the sanctuary open up and those lights come on and, and there she stands. I, I, I get to see her. Um, I get to see her relief of finally standing in the place where, that she has dreamed about much of her adult life. I get to see her lips quiver. And, and I get to see her, her, her eyes sparkle. You know, I have probably done, I don't know, I, I was trying to guess. In the course of 40 years of ministry, I, I've probably done 500 weddings. And um, every time I do one, I'm, I'm nervous, I'm, I'm jittery, very much so. Because I know that, that this wedding ceremony is, is the culmination of a lifetime worth of dreams. And I don't want to blow it for this little couple. I want them to have everything that they ever dreamed about. You know, there, there are few such moments in all of life, like a wedding. Maybe, maybe childbirth. But of the two, I, I would say that, that uh, weddings are, um, are, are, are more celebrated than, than is even childbirth. Uh, if for no other reason, there's far more people at a wedding than are at a childbirth. And weddings are far more expensive. You know, you, um, there's no insurance to cover your wedding. Um, weddings mark the, the beginning of a relationship that, of all other relationships known to human man, it is the one thing that holds out a promise of enduring happiness. However, 
as you well know, marriage is one of the most delicate and demanding of all relationships there are. Um, It's more demanding and it can inflict more pain than anything else that we know of. For some, and and you you won't believe me when I say this, but it's the truth. I've I've had this happen to me. For some, the the high point of their their, um, marriage is the wedding ceremony. And from there, um, everything begins to fall apart. And, and couples begin this slow, inexorable slide into, into disappointment and in uh, mediocrity and boredom. Um, and yet in the face of all kinds of numerous discouraging statistics, like I read one place where it was estimated that only 5% of marriages are truly happy. I read one guy say, he said that we live in a post-marriage culture. We don't even need it anymore. And yet in the face of all of those, those very negative statistics, there are sociological reports all uh, that abound that will tell you that the, that the marriage rate has not gone down. Divorce rates have gone up, but marriage rates have not gone down. Even, even in the face of all of that, uh, because marriage continues to be the last best hope that we have for the fulfillment of all of my dreams. Uh, apparently, the yearning for solitude is being trumped by the yearning for companionship. The, the, the yearning for independence is being trumped by the yearning for dependence. The, the yearning for self-sufficiency is, is being trumped by a yearning for cooperation. And, and, and I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that marriage represents the best of both of, both of, the best of, both of those worlds. Um, and, and, and even so, um, it is still the most delicate, still the most demanding relationship, and it, and it always surprises us, I think, at the sheer intensity of the invasion of our privacy. You know, I think we all have this um, resentment, this uh, kind of latent resentment to the demands of marriage, which very well may be the... Um, the point of origin for that slow, inexorable slide into which so many marriages slip. So, ladies and gentlemen, what, what is to be done? Well, that's what this series is about, ladies and gentlemen. I'm hoping to offer some help, some instructions, some suggestions that will... Um, that will reverse this inexorable slide into boredom and make it the, the fruitful and, and enjoyable institution that it was intended to be. Now, this morning, I only have two 
two observations for you. And what we're going to do over the course of this series is, is kind of add to that. And so uh, if you ever are tempted to take notes, there would just be two things that would be on your sheet of paper this morning. Um, and then we're going to add to that and fill in some blanks and, and tease it out some over the course of uh, the coming weeks. But I want to start with the, with the most basic, the most fundamental. And then we'll go from there, as I said, um, in, in, in future weeks. I want to begin like this. I want to begin with a quote from uh, Leslie Newbigin. Uh, Leslie Newbigin has is, is, is written several books, but in one of his books, he says this, and I quote, In a mutual relationship between two human beings, we know that it can be sustained only if both parties acknowledge something that has authority over both of them, and if each trusts the other to acknowledge that. Did you get that? I'll read it real fast, one more time, but... In, in a mutual relationship of two human beings, we know that it can only be sustained if both parties acknowledge something that has authority over both of them and if each trusts the other to acknowledge that. Now, what could that be? Um, <clears throat> what is it that... To what could both of us point as the thing that has the final say? Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, you probably know what I'm going to say. But I couldn't believe this any firmer than I believe that I'm existing at this very moment. With every fiber of my being, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen... The ultimate arbiter of the truth is this book. And as little as it might say about marriage in all these pages, what it does say is so profound, it is so demanded, it is so necessary to the health of any marriage, and you can choose to do it any way you like. But if you ignore the principles that are contained in this book concerning your marriage, you will be broken upon the rocks of the demands of marriage. Um, It can be sustained only if both parties acknowledge something that has an authority over both of them. Ladies and gentlemen, when you run into a marital crisis, to what do you turn? Oprah? God help you. Dr. Phil? Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, again, there's, in all honesty, there's very little said about marriage in this book, but what it does say is a blueprint, uh, a paradigm for this institution called marriage. And if you ignore it, not simply ignore it, if you do not conform to it, I'm not sure that that, that I can help you. 
Um, now, that all brings us to Genesis chapter 2. Um, you know, guys, the reason that there is so much, there's so much promise of joy in marriage is because there's so much of God in marriage. Um, you know, from top to bottom, God's involved in the, in the creation of this institution. As I said, it's, it's, it's a high point in the whole creation story. And yet, verse 18 tells us that there is a flaw. There is a flaw in creation. Um, it, it, it tells you the flaw in verse 18. It says it's not good that man should be alone. There's the flaw. But what does that mean? Now, guys, I, I want to warn you. I'm about to break some new ground here. And if you think that you know that what I'm about to say, you don't. Because what I'm about to tell you is not something I've ever said to you before. It represents a kind of an advance, I think, in my understanding of this text. So, what does all this mean? This flaw that exists in the creation. Well, let me start like this. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen. Um, where do we see the love of God most clearly on display? Where do we see the abject zenith of God's manifest glory? Well, that's a pretty easy question. It's at Calvary. The place where we see his, the, the zenith of his love is, is at Calvary by sacrificing his own son on our behalf, where we see the self-sacrificing love of God on display. Okay? I think we'd all agree about that. Now, so if that is true, if God's glory is best seen in his self-sacrificing love, then so is ours. That is, our glory is best seen in self-sacrificing love. By the way, um, do you know that J.K. Rowland in that Harry Potter series... Um, uh, she says in, in volume one, in the, in the first book, she says uh, that self-sacrificing love is the most powerful force in the universe. And you do know how the last volume ends, don't you? The Harry Potter series, that Harry Potter, I'm sorry to ruin this for you, but uh, has to die in the place of his friends because self-sacrificing love is the most powerful force in the universe. Now, guys, if, if, if God's glory is best seen in his self-sacrifice at Calvary, and it is, and you and I are made in his image, and we are, then I am to reflect him in all of my ways, including the very zenith of my display of glory being found in self-sacrificing love. Now, guys, here's what I'm saying. The flaw, the flaw in creation is not that Adam is lonely. 
The flaw is that Adam is alone. And thus he has no one to whom he might show self-sacrificing love. Guys, the, the, the text goes on in the last couple of verses and it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they, the two shall become one flesh. Oh my goodness, that, that, that term one flesh is as mysterious as it is breathtaking. And we will come back to it at a later point. Um, but for this cause a man shall leave his mother and father. For what cause? For what cause is it necessitated or is it, is it, does it deem, is it deem advisable to leave your father and your mother and to cleave to another woman? Here's the cause, ladies and gentlemen, so that a relationship can be created where self-sacrificing love can be shown in ever-increasing degrees over the entirety of my lifetime. Do you see that? The reason that this is bad, the reason that there's a flaw, is not because Adam is all alone twiddling his thumbs and watching ESPN. No! The reason that it's bad is because there's no one on the face of the planet to whom Adam might show the very apex of his created image of God. Self-sacrificing love. Guys, because of that, there is, there needs to be an exchange of self-giving love. Um, and to do that, you cannot do that as, as a single human. You need another person to do that. A duality is required. So that, so that one person can love another person. Adam cannot express the very essence of being made in the image of God if there's not another person there. And so for this cause, God creates another person and then he sends them off. For what? So that they can have sex? So that there can be an ever-increasing opportunity to display self-sacrificing love over a lifetime. <laughs> and lo and behold, what we see is an increasing divorce rate. You know, why do marriages fail at such an alarming rate? And if they don't fail, they, you know, they, they might remain intact, but they become oh so unsatisfying to the point that this, you adopt this resignation of defeat. 
you know, guys, it can be shocking to a young couple to find out just how briefly romantic love lasts. How, how soon romantic love is exhausted. And, and you see, one of the, one of the, the characteristics of love is that it asks for everything. And oh, how hard it is to give that. So why is it that marriages fail at such an alarming rate? Well, you might expect me to say this, but hear me out. The reason that I think marriages failed so often is because two people do not grow spiritually. Now, hold on. Uh, That sounds simple, but... Guys, marriage is subject to the second law of thermodynamics like everything else in creation. That is, marriage tends towards randomness. It tends towards distance and boredom. And so to try and just get some new hobbies or some new homes or some new places to live, that will not make for freshness. But growing souls will. And so if you get yourself in a, in a, in a marital bind and you begin to pursue some, you know, some how-to advice, um, that's not going to help you. All these Dr. Phil specials, I, I'm telling you, in my opinion, they do more harm than they do good. Because they, 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 they wind up being nothing more than some kind of rules and roles that are dreamed up by some extroverted Pharisee. And, 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 and those, those models that are out there in all the magazines, they're, they're almost impossible to avoid. And what we really need is a whole change of paradigm. We need a whole new perspective. It's the perspective that's contained in here. And um, it's this that's got to become the Supreme Court. Our final arbiter of the truth. And here's what this says. The key to your marriage is self Sacrificing love, enabled by the Holy Spirit in the souls of two growing believers. Let me put it simply we marry for the good of our partner, we marry to give ourselves. To our spouse. And by the way, that's not just said to men. That's said to women as well. Gang, marriage is not something we do. Marriage is something we are. It cannot be reduced to a series of steps or how-tos. We succeed in marriage... By being who we are in Christ Jesus. Listen, we succeed in marriage by being who we are in Christ Jesus. And do you know who we are?
We are recipients of self-sacrificing love. And I am called to reflect that to her, to him. Guys, do you remember the first time somebody told you they loved you? Not your mother, but, you know, it's some kind of romantic opposite. Remember that? Um, do you know what that meant? Well, we sure thought we did. <laughs> well, in fact, we even had a unity candle in our, in our wedding. But we were shocked, ladies and gentlemen, to discover that marriage was not the merger of our two worlds. Marriage was the abandonment of our two worlds so that we could create a whole new third one. Marriage is an earthquake that relocates the center of our universe. Anything less than that, my friends, you're headed for either boredom or divorce. The contributing factor to marital demise is self Fishness, the palace of the ego. You know, everyone has a weakness, guys. We all have weaknesses. And, and there is nothing like marriage to expose them. It's like love pins us up against the wall and demands transparency. Marriage takes two people and brings them out into the light. And one of the first things we discover out there in the light is selfishness. But for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I'm going to create an institution for you, ladies and gentlemen, says God, that you can display self-sacrificing love to one person in increasing levels over a lifetime. And what do we do? You know, about once a year, it's not real often, but I, and I hope that's not overstated, but I'll say once a year, somebody says something like this to me. They say, um, well, Dr. Young... I just, I finally decided that I just couldn't change him. Do you think that's noble? Ladies and gentlemen, that's not noble. That is utter selfishness. That's not love. I'm supposed to be loving another person in the same way that I was loved. 
Well, but okay, what if I do that? Then Dr. Young, and, and then, and I met with, I met with indifference. Uh, can I, is that my, is that, do I have permission to, uh, to, to withdraw? Heavens no. What that does provide is a new and a fresh opportunity to become even more selfless in our love for another human being. To become, to become even more like our self-emptying God. Or you can choose to do it your way. And you can end up divorced once or twice or maybe, maybe three times. Impatience, critical spirit, lack of tenderness, anger, harsh words. You know what that all is, don't you? Surely you do. Those are just signs that we have failed in selfless love giving. We love ourselves. I like me. And thus, we inflict hurt like no other. Because there is no hurt like the hurt that happens in the place where we love. All because of the palace of the ego. I want to say this to you, ladies and gentlemen, and I and I, I this is um, this is a bold statement, <laughs> but I think it's true. No worship can be more pleasing and acceptable to God than the worship of marital love. Guys, marriage is a means of grace. Do you know what that is? Do you know what a, you know what a means of grace is? A means of grace is a vehicle. It's a tool. It's something that God gives us so that he can chisel on us and and shape us and make us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And if there's anything that will do that, marriage is it. I want to tell you something. In 43 years of marriage to that woman, I have probably not loved her self-sacrificingly for five minutes in the entire 43 years. And she doesn't know I'm going to say this, but she hasn't probably loved me self-sacrificially for five minutes either. You know what? I want to. And so does she. And because of the kindness of God over 43 43 years, our souls have grown and expanded. And I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we're getting better at it. Now, 
Marriage is the most sublime of all of the metaphors in the New Testament describing my relationship to God. You know, there's all kinds of metaphors. There's the king subject, there's the sheep shepherd, there's the father son. All these are metaphors to describe my relationship. But you know, the, the most sublime of them all is the, is the metaphor of a bride and a bridegroom. That is, Christ is the heavenly bridegroom and I am his bride. Jesus Christ loves me so much. He wants to marry me. He wants us to become his bride. And to prove his love for us. He went out and sacrificed himself in love at Calvary. Jesus Christ didn't love me this much. He didn't love me this much. He loved me this much. And with that model in mind, I'm supposed to go conduct a marriage. I'm supposed to love the way I've been loved. And like I said at the beginning, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing better than a good one of those. But there is nothing worse. than not to be married to Jesus Christ. Nothing worse. Our Father, I do pray that you'll use these um, vain babblings of mine to encourage your people. I pray that they might discover that there is still hope for their marriages, there's still hope for for them as a home, as a family, and that they might... um, give themselves over to the, um, to the growing process of a growing soul so that we can learn more about how to love the way we're supposed to in the first place. Meet us, oh God. Meet us here in the, in the, the very center of our need because every one of us acknowledge how far we fall short of this And so the thing that we need to hear again is the gospel about free forgiveness, reconciliation to God because of what Jesus did. And in the light of his love, teach us to love. And we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.